Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. So this week on Top Lines and Tales, we have, I would call, a one-breed man, a Charolais man through and through. Uh, David Benson, long-time association with the Charolais breed. Uh, welcome to Top Lines and Tales, David. Thank you very much, Andy. And, and as I said, a, a one-breed man being with Charolais, pretty much man and boy, and uh, started your career, I think, with Billy Turner there at Brampton. Or where were you before then? That's right. No, I left, uh, well, I was at university at Newcastle. I was uh, reading agriculture. And I wanted to work really practically on farms, but there were no no farming jobs or assistant managers' jobs going. And I'd known Billy Turner for years, and uh, I just saw him one Friday afternoon. I was home, and he said, uh, "I bought this small herd of Charolais, and I'm looking for a keen young lad to come and work with them." Okay. I thought I'll do it for a year or so. I'll get some experience in farming and see what comes. Anyway, I stayed there 13 years. <laughs> He did, and you said a small herd. He, he Did he buy the herd then outright? Because a lot of those would be yeah. imports as well, would they? Uh, he bought the herd outright because a good friend of his was tragically killed in a in a, a road accident, taking a load of pigs into Leeds one morning. Okay. And uh, he had a chance to buy them. I think there was something like maybe 15 cattle in total, maybe, maybe 10 or 12 heifers plus a few followers. Okay. Was Billy in... in Beef cattle before then, a dairy man, and what, what was he doing before that? Billy was always beef, sheep, and arable. You know, he used to buy a lot of store cattle, uh, suckle cows, and finish them, and, you know, sheep and arable. He was a really good farmer, mm-hmm. a proper traditional farmer, you know, worked on lay systems, permanent grass. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was a real man of the, man of the soil. And he would have, what year are we talking here now then? Late 70s, I guess, is it? Uh, no, no, 75. 75, okay, right. There wouldn't be many Charolais about by then. No, uh, I was offered the job in maybe the January and my wife-to-be met with being engaged for a year or two. And so we were married on the 26th of June and I started work, no, I graduated 26th of June and we were married 28th of June, and I started for Billy about 10 days later. Okay. okay. And as you so, said, just just young heifers to start with, were they? But uh, be some bloody good ones across there, because Brampton will be known, and still known, probably as one of the, the top herds of Charolais in, in the UK. Well, we did quite well, yeah. It started off, I mean, it was a fast learning curve for me, and for Billy and Jane, his wife. Uh, they knew nothing really about pedigree breeding, Apart from race horses, Jane was very good with thoroughbred horses. And um, so we, I think we learned together, really. Mm-hmm. I started in 75, and I think we maybe the following year or two, I think it was the following year, we had, there was a sale at Bingley Hall in Stafford. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that these heifers were hardly broken, and it was a fast learning curve. And they were towing around the place, so you had a got stuck in and walked away. <laughs> a bit of life in them and, and some of those have said that you know, the French imports wouldn't have long been in the country so they would go back to French breeding fairly fairly quickly in the pedigrees would they? Yeah I think yeah looking back there were 11 of them nine were imported and two were bred in this country okay. and then you took to the show circuit another learning curve for you and him I guess 
Yeah, I, two or three years later, we had a really good heifer, a, two-year, a two-year-old and a yearling, and we went to the Royal Show, and I think we got a second and a fourth. And in those days, there'd be 28 in the, the two-year-old class. Yeah, yeah, huge classes. Then you went on to do better than that. I think you won the Burke, didn't you? Yeah, we won the Burke in 1980-82. We had a bull in the Burke team, and that was a that was the Blue Ribbon event. That was like winning the Derby. Yeah in the horse racing world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there were tremendous heady days. Charolais would have already had their foot in the door at the Burke, wouldn't they? I remember being down there when uh, Tartan Hall Hublot won it. I think, I'm going to say 77 or 78, so they would have already had a go, the Charolais, at the at, at the yeah. front of the queue, which is a, it, it, it was a, a big honour, but, I mean, the Charolais went on to win the Burke probably more times than anybody in the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think over the years, I think uh, Charolais won it maybe 13 times, which was... A record. I don't know what it's like now, but I mean that was a record for the Royal Show. Mm-hmm. Well, the Royal Show, of course. Mm-hmm. To our overseas listeners, the Royal Show no longer there, of course, but uh, a fantastic no, no. event. And and a Yorkshire Show as well was a stomping ground, didn't you? Win three Yorkshire shows in a row, three three interbreeds in a row at the Yorkshire. Yeah, we won the eighty eighty one, maybe eighty two, something like that. Mm-hmm. With two different animals, with a homebred cow mole, and with Nebulous the the bull. Nebulous. Not, who was who bred him? It was Parsonage Nebulous, Pimlet and Cotton. Okay. Okay. Do you remember Tom Cotton? He was, you know, he was one of the doyens of the stockman's world in those days. Yeah, yeah, tremendous man, tremendous man. We'll go on to a few stockmen in a second, and and uh, and you'll have again Brampton will have topped Perth. You'll have obviously that would be your your main sale would be taking you know from Brampton be taking bulls to Perth in the old market as well. I mean, something special that old market, wasn't it? Oh, fantastic! Yeah, we we had a really good go in Perth. You know, and in those days, well, that sell 300 bulls, Chardonnay bulls. Mm-hmm. Well, latterly, that would be, maybe not in the early days, but uh, over the years, I think when I was at Billy's, we sold 116 Chardonnay bulls through Perth. Really? Wow. Okay, now, see, so the main the main sale for them, and still is to that, to that matter as well. Perth has yeah. always been, well, sterling, of course, as it is now, but, uh, and, and, because you guys, the Charolais would have taken over the mantle from the Angus, and I'm very much involved in the history of the Angus at the moment, and uh, the Angus would have had their halcyon days there year on year, and then the Angus dwindled, but the Charolais just stepped right into their shoes, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they had a big advantage in growth rates, uh, the Charolais in those days, you know, the Angus had got small, and there's, I remember seeing a photograph years ago of a, an Angus heifer and a Chevrolet heifer, similar ages, and, you know, there'd be 250 kilos difference. You'd put one inside the other, that's right. You would back then, and they did, yeah. get them, they did get them small and dysfunctional, didn't they? And the Chevrolet just walked straight into that gap. Not just the Chevrolet, I think the yeah. Chevrolet's under cemetals as well, you know, walked straight into the hole yeah. that they'd left. Yeah. And, and then you moved on from, from Billy's. And am I right in thinking Richard Retty took over your job at Brampton? Well, Richard came to me... He worked with me for a year or two okay. um, because apart from, I think when I, at that time, there was 97 Chardonnay cows. There were 14 thoroughbred brood mares to look after. Billy had a, or the, the Turner family, you know, really had a bad go because Jane, who was very much involved in, in the farming, uh, she was taken ill with a, a brain hemorrhage. And so she was debilitated. And so I was running more and more of the farm with Billy. And uh, it was a winter of, I used to call it winter of discontent because, you know, all day long it was working, feeding cattle or getting horses in and out. And I said, look, we need need another man on here. And I knew 
Alice Retty, I knew Richard was leaving school, so Richard came to work with us for a couple of years until I was offered the Chatelet job. Okay, well, you'd, uh, you'd have trained a good man, uh, respected by a lot of people, as his father and his grandfather, for that matter, but one of the greatest yeah, stockmen yeah. in the country, and that's obviously you put some a bit of grounding in there, David. Take a bit of credit for that. Yeah, no, I did well, did Rich. Yeah, he was a good, hard-working lad. And as you said, you took the Charolais yeah. job, went on to be chief executive of the Charolais Cattle Society, I'm saying 1988, I'm taking a stab at um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, it was secretary, executive officer, the, the title was then. Mm-hmm. It was a few years later, Neil Massey said, he was chairman, and he said, uh, I propose that we make you chief executive, he says, because you just get on and do everything. And uh, I said, oh, that's nice, Neil, how much more money? He said, bugger all. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, the uh, job title's worth, worth a lot of money. But, and, and, uh, you, and you went there, there wouldn't be much in the way of, I mean, I was involved in, in, in a few breed society things going back that far, and uh, it wouldn't be much in the way of technology when you went there, though, would they? I mean, it'd be fairly, a secondary's yeah. job, it would still be a lot of pen and paper, but uh... Oh, definitely. I mean, they, they had a computer, which was a biggish machine, and you just have to take three discs down to the bank every week, you know, as backup in case we lost the data. It was really just churning out pedigrees. That was it. Everything else was written typewriters. Mm-hmm. With no mobile phones and with no uh, standalone computers. No, no. Incredible when you look at it now. I mean, obviously, a lot of these breed societies, have been, some of them have been going back for you know, centuries now, but uh, the, the revolution hadn't come by that time, that's for sure. And, and who, who did you take over from there, remind me? Well, Alistair Mackay had been there 19 years. Ah. Then he retired, and um, a guy, Selwyn Evans, was there for about a year from Wales. Okay. Selwyn, you know, he was a decent guy, was Selwyn, but anyway, it didn't work out, and I was approached if I'd be interested. It was a big change going from Billy's to sat in, a, in a, an office thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Well, you need to learn on your feet there as well. And, of course, a lot of man management. You'd have a, a team of staff there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with an office manager, uh, Ron Barr, and there'd be eight girls, I think, in there at that time, or eight ladies. Mm-hmm. And that was based, of course, on the on the Royal Showground. In St- was it on the Royal Showground, or was it nearby? It was certainly down no, there by the Royal no, Showground. No, it was nearby. They had a freehold office at Covington. It was only two miles from the showground, mm-hmm. and we took a decision of what to be about 1992, maybe, 91, that... The environmental health were getting a bit difficult over having a marquee. We used to put a big marquee up at the at the Royal Show and the environmental health were getting difficult and costs were going up and there was one or two repairs needed doing for the offices so we took a decision and we got a, a, a favourable deal with the RASE and uh, we sold the the freehold and we took a 99 year lease on the building at Stoneley. And, and you built that, am I right thinking you built that with the Cementals? You certainly shared it with the Cementals. No, 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 we were standalone, uh, Charolais alone. Okay. And we had the offices upstairs, the Cementals were next door. Okay. Uh, our admin office was upstairs, boardroom, etc. And um, downstairs was really for exhibitions. Primarily the Royal Show. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and uh, the Texels would have moved in there around about the same time, maybe a bit later. They built their own one as well, didn't they? Yeah, they were a bit later, a couple of years maybe later. Jeff Borden was chairman of the Texels, and he came round because I thought we made, well, we did make a good job of the building. We put it out to tender at the time, and uh, 
there was well the winner was we put it out with various Charolais breeders who uh, who were builders and uh, Piper Construction won it Dennis Park in it and he, Dennis wanted it because he was a local man and he wanted it to be right okay. you know, it was a it was an advert for him so it had to be well built and we put a lovely boardroom in and uh, yeah it was good. Mm. No, it was, a, it was a special place and good. Also, from from a um, from the show ground point of view, we go on to the you know, the Royal Show that was sort of the annual, as you said, the pinnacle of the year, really. And of course, you guys would have the you'd have a massive bar downstairs, and uh, it would be the pretty much the place to be. Oh, very much so. It was fantastic. You know, we had four or five nights in there, and it just went like a fair. <laughs> it was. You know, nice. time, we had we had good caterers and good bar staff in. And the lunches were very good, and, and then in the evenings, well, we had a, one or two good nights in there over the years. <laughs> I've been partly to one or two of those. I think uh, when all the other bars closed, I think everybody came into yours. I think you must have kept it open an hour longer than everybody else, or an hour or two. <laughs> yeah, open all hours. And and it was brilliant though. The Royal Show. Look back. I mean, the position you had, position A, right on the corner of the main ring there, and, and or the, the Gattle Ring, should I say? And the, as you said, the Cimitars next door, and then there'd be the short arms and the Angus a bit further down there. It was almost like a pub crawl, really. It was all the all those permanent buildings all around the side of that ring. It just made for a great week, didn't it, of of, uh, of oh, entertainment? Yeah, it did. And it just shows how much money, relatively, there was in cattle breeding in those days, where all those breed societies could afford to make these permanent show structure just for a week of the year we made ours you know for 365 days of the year as did the texas and i think uh, the limits did the limousines yeah. have theirs permanently there as well because they were handy yeah. around that part of the world as well weren't they yeah yeah limousines limitals we were blondes mm-hmm. texas mm-hmm. short on big short on yeah and and you stayed in that role there for i don't until the 2017 was it you finished there david when I finished, it was uh, yeah, 2017. I was I'd been there 29 years. I did. Okay. I was, I was 55, and I thought, well, I've grown up with a generation of breeders, and the staff. I think we'd all done about combined with something like 165 years old okay. service, and it was time probably for a change. I'm going to ask you a slightly controversial uh, question here is the fact that some of the other breed societies, and I won't name names, that some of them went through chief executives three, four years max, um, and quite a few of them did, to be honest there. Nobody, I don't think, would have kept, a, apart from maybe the Angus going back in the 1940s, nobody would have kept a, a, a chief exec for that long. How the hell did you manage to stay, stay in that job that length of time? I don't know. It was just straightforward. One bit of, of advice Billy Turner always said to me was, Never get yourself into a corner you can't get out of. Okay. And I used to to me, chairman and, and tr- primarily treasurer, or sometimes, you know, I used to keep everybody in contact. Mm-hmm. We all worked together as a team and we discussed things. Mm-hmm. You know, we were always open and uh, we tried to give a good service. I, I got uh, quite close to Ron Mahati in his later years, and yeah, Ron, another great CEO that I, I thought, but he used to say that he kept a circle of probably three or four uh, people that, that may be in the, the presidential role and, and, and the first tier there amongst the councils that were primarily businessmen that knew how to run a business as well as just cattle people. Would that would do the same apply with you? Yeah, I wouldn't say we had a, we, we, we didn't have a clique. We, over the 29 years, 
we never had a bad meeting where people were shouting or throwing teacups. You know, we had some difficult decisions to make at times, but we always worked together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was something that was, it, 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 everybody went forward with no splits or divisions in council. You know, you could have different opinions, and then we come to a consensus. And I, I, had, some, I had some very good chairman, you know, and, and treasurers. We had some great people on that board, you know. You certainly did, and, and some great characters as well, I would say. There were oh, always yeah. some great characters in that breed, but some fantastic characters that you would be closely involved with and, and, uh, and, and, and would, would go touring with as well, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in those days... You see, when I first started with Chevrolet, the there were still the heady days in France. And, you know, you'd be invited over to France. And it was all paid by the French and uh, French Herdbook or whoever was paying for it over there. And uh, there was still quite a lot of export. And there were people from all over the world coming to France to buy Chevrolet. Sure. They were hard, got hard to buy at one time, I think, didn't they, when everybody wanted them? Yeah, and you see that in in the early days, the French were still vaccinating cattle for foot and mouth disease. You know, so once we would buy them in before they were vaccinated as heifers, and so there were people from Australia, Canada, America, South Africa, wherever, uh, coming over to buy our cattle because they could buy them foot and mouth uh, free. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you'd picked up some of that market sort of secondhand, I suppose, if they couldn't get them out of France. But, um, yeah. but some great bulls came out of France. You look back, still some great bulls in France, yeah. I know, but some great bulls uh, came out of France. And obviously you go to the Paris show and some monumental bulls going back into the 70s and, and 80s. You see some of these pictures of these bulls that sort of, you know, 3,500 weight and what have you. Cattle were different, though. The, 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 the French cattle would be different to the British cattle and still to this day, I would say. Yeah, and I think also in France you get your big show bulls, which probably haven't changed that much over the years. You know, they've got that great character, they've got their horns and big bones, big structure. But you'll see a lot more functional cattle also, you know, in the countryside, in the fields. Yeah, and that is the thing. I mean, around that Cherol area, we mentioned this just now, that, uh, you know, in, in parts of France where I, I live, they're all Blonde Aquitaines down here, and you go north of me, and they're all limousines, but all the Cherol is pretty much in one region, aren't they? So you, when you go around there, everything is Cherol. They, they're all pure as well, aren't they? Yeah, and also the Vendée area in western France is a big area there, mm-hmm. uh, the Cherol there. Mm-hmm. And they'd probably be a bit more functional than the traditional type in some ways. Okay. Slightly different. But as you'd said, you'd done a lot of tours down there and you'd take a lot of people and, and, and you'd tour around farms and buy cattle or would it just pretty, pretty much go, the guys just go into the sale? Uh, no, there would, would you go to the shows, the calf show in September, there would be invitations. Breeders would come in from France and take people away to the farms to, okay. you know, to show them the cattle, really. And uh, I missed out on the big, heady days when there were the buying groups going out and they would have been fantastic they used to stay at the La Renaissance in Manicour you know, which was a restaurant they would all go out in the buying groups and then come back in there and exchange mm-hmm. you know what they've seen and prices and what they could remember as well I think yeah yeah, what they could remember, you're right. And uh, yeah. but, I mean, being with the Charolais breed, I mean, I'm just doing the, doing the maths here. See, pretty much with the Charolais breed for close on forty years. Not well, yeah, best part, no, over forty years, I would say. Right? Yeah, forty-two years. Yeah, I still keep an interest in it as well. Yeah. You know, I don't. 
I don't like to interfere too much, but uh, I still like to go to the shows and sales and see old friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so let's talk about the Charolais themselves a little bit. As I said, going back to the cattle that Billy had in the 1975 to where the Charolais evolved to and where it's evolved to again. They've changed a lot during that time, haven't they? They've, uh, they've made a different beast out of what they had originally. Yeah. When you look back at old photographs that we had back in the 70s and 80s, they'd be unsaleable today. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the confirmation's better now, structure. Uh, carving ease has improved a lot. That was certainly uh, at Gilly's heel for a while, wasn't it, I think, for the Charolais? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, and the thing was, I suppose, the, the first, you know, it was just going like a fair up to about, to, was it nine, early 90s, mm-hmm. when BSE broke out. Mm-hmm. And overnight, these cows that were worth neck end of two grand to kill, they were worth 250 quid overnight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that really pulled the rug on these big cattle sure. it did and uh, going back to some of these cattle in the in the shows then you'll have seen you know, a lot of great beasts there. can you give us a tell me a best beast that you've generally beast in your mind that you've seen or that you work with the female oh, well yeah I saw better cattle the best beast obviously everybody goes on is was kill Kenny Celia I remember Mowbray Park GG as a baby on the fair mm-hmm. um, and she was quite muscly but she sort of developed into a great female as she got older, there was an Elgin, uh, was it Fleur the Calder? She was a good one. But, uh, Andrew Arnold's canvas, Baron Fish, he was another good cow. Living here, same thing. But you'd have to pick Seely because she won, the, you know, she's a grand slam of all the royals. Just such a pretty and beast. She was a, a perfect beast, really, wasn't she? She's as near perfect beast as you could yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. And it always seemed to be the females as well. Everybody, when you talk about the, you know, the best animals, it's always the females, but there would have been a lot of good bulls about too. There were, but you see, a lot of the good bulls, you know, that time of year for the show time, they were working. Mm. Um, but, you know, two bulls which stuck out to me. One wasn't a show bull. Uh, I mean, Fernie was a good bull. Bounce and Fernie would probably be the best show bull I've seen. Uh, but another bull that Peter Donga had was uh, Mady Flambeau. Okay. If he'd been out to show, he'd have been some machine. And Mady, of course, you mentioned there's more Evans there. Of course, one of the guys that's been a backbone of the breed, been in there right from the beginning, still there. A, a lot of yeah. cattle, a lot of cattle, and just keeps bringing them out in, in massive numbers, but just uh, peas in a pod, too. Yeah, very, very able fella. He's an enigma, he's Esma, uh, but he's a very, very able fella. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And you mentioned some of the stockmen there. Again, a lot of great stockmen. A lot of the stockmen that came into the into the Charolais would have come from their grounding in the Angus breeds early on, I guess. You know, people like Bert Rugg and yeah. what have you that would have been in Angus and then yeah. switched to Charolais when it came in. So there's a lot of able men came into the Angus into the Charolais breeds uh, fairly quickly, didn't they? Yeah, from Angus, short on. You know, there was Tom Cotton. I think he came through a, a dairy short on okay. side. Uh, um, Tom Bratshaw, Sandy Beaton... Gordon Rugg was a great fella. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these people were all trained, whereas now you don't get the stockmen being trained by the mentors such as they were because the staff out there. No, true. No, I remember talking to, to Ian Anderson and him saying when he was at Dirk Luck, he was fifth stockman. He, yeah. was, he was the one yeah, that had yeah, to pick, bed, bed him down at night or, or be the one, the one to go and bed him down at 10 o'clock at night or what have you. And they were the yeah. four stockmen above him, unbelievable. Yeah. 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 No, there were people who, you know, they would tell you and keep you right. And yeah. Tom Cotton used to bring his bulls up from Hertfordshire, wherever he was, 
uh, it'd stop overnight at Brampton, and then we'd, we'd go on from there up to Perth. Okay, so you'd get a bit of an education from him yourself then? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And going back to the, the, the challenges of the, the CEO then, uh, stayed with the Sherrys, did uh, you never consider going to another breed? Were there offers on the table to, to pooch you away from such a, doing such a great job? Yeah, I did have the opportunity, so I was in sort of half-hearted because I knew I knew where my loyalties were, mm-hmm. but I couldn't I couldn't have gone anywhere else. It wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. <laughs> as I said, <laughs> the top of this program, there a one a one breed man, and, and as you said you're still involved. In it, and you, have you got any actual involvement now? Are you fully retired? You got any involvement no. Uh, no. Um, with any any other uh, organisations? No, not really. No, no. Where we are now, I, I, I like. Uh, I've always been keen on on bird watching, ornithology, or nature and such like. And where we live up here now, it's uh, it's a beautiful area for that type of thing. We've got grandchildren in Oxfordshire and up here. We spent quite a lot of time between the two of them, you know, the families. And uh, there's never a dull day anyway. And you say up here, you, you told me you live in near Kelso and on uh, on the Kersno estate, or certainly on on um on, by uh, uh, John Jeffries there at Kersno. No, no, we live in Kelso town itself, and it was a house which uh, Jimmy Jeffrey, who was a past president of the society, he owned it, and I used to pop down over maybe twenty years while I lived here. And we'd have a drummy and we'd have a chat and I'd pick him up and take him to the shows, the sales. And so we knew the house very well and it sits well, you know, looks beautiful views across the town and, and the countryside. And uh, and the opportunity came, it was for sale, which I never thought it would be. And I just popped in for old time's sake, really, just to have, I don't know why I popped in, it was fate. And uh, it was for sale, I said to my wife, and we had no intention of moving, we just done the house up in Warwickshire. And uh, I said, do you fancy move? <laughs> so long and hard about it because, say, we have a daughter and her family in Oxfordshire, and that was the hardest bit, leaving them. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you get one life and you go for it. Got to do it, got to do it indeed. And say, going back to Jim Jeffrey, of course, one of the guys that, again, would be the early adopters of the breed at uh, Kersno, Kersno Festival, everybody will remember, sort of, and the early bulls that put a backbone in a lot of the show calves as well. But uh, And, and John Jeffrey yeah. still runs the farm, still runs Charolais down there at Kersno? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he'd be the first five-figure bull would Kersno, 10,000. And, you know, I used to love coming and, and sitting with Jimmy here on a night grab a dram and he would tell us he had a fantastic memory Jimmy and he would tell us about the heady days because he used to be on the buying missions in France yeah yeah and John of course is it that people will know listen to this program because you're a great rugby player for Scotland and uh, John if you're listening in uh, hope you good luck with your new position I think taking over taking over the world I wouldn't say quite but taking over the head at at World Rugby I think so uh, still involved in that as well as the farming and putting a lot back which is uh, which is great to see. Let's go go on to a, a moment that I remember. Then and you're going to catch you on this one when Bob Douglas won won Smithfield with a Charolais when the limousines had had a dominance so much time there and uh, Fred Smith at the halter there, fantastic beast. And I remember a, a a monumental party there. But I believe you got left with a bill for that one, uh, David. I think I think we did. Yeah, I think the society did anyway. Yeah, we did. But I mean, it was it, yeah, it's one of those things I had to. Uh, Answerable to the treasurer, but uh, must have sold it well because he, he quite he accepted it. It was five hundred quid one day, which was 
I think Not too bad either. It was quite a lot in those days, but we'd had a good year, so it didn't matter. I think I drank my body weight in whiskey at that one as well. There was certainly, a, <laughs> certainly an, an occasion that uh, we can all, well, everybody will remember because those great days down at Smithfield. But that was, uh, it was brilliant to see the Charolais coming back there, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you know, when you look back at Smithfield, you know, those people have missed out on those days now. Mm-hmm. They have. They were like Ascot in the. You know, it's one of the places to be, wasn't it, in the year? Absolutely, the... one everybody looked forward to, and uh, yeah, for, for for good reason. And then you had, I believe, you were went on to be president yourself. Um, not the UK Sherrill, it was at the International Sherrill Society. Uh, you went on to be president. Let me someone. Huh? Yeah, that was about the year before I retired. It would be twenty sixteen. Uh, I was the one and only uh, non. Charolais breeder to have been awarded that honour. So it, it was, yes, very moving oh, at the time, you know. And what did that entail? Not a lot, really. It was just recognition for what you've done over the years. Okay. So you didn't get to tour. But you would have world conferences still do, I guess. I mean, I know all these breeds have a world conference in various parts of the world. So you'll have headed off, you'll have done a fair bit of touring around the world with the Charolais. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's one. Over the years, I think we, when I was there, we hosted two world congresses and a, and a technical congress in Scotland through the, the colleges up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, every year there was always somewhere to go. <laughs> and I, th- I remember reading somewhere that you judge cattle in Zimbabwe or somewhere. Yeah, certainly, you've, 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 yeah. you've, what were you doing there? Yeah. Well, it, again, it was through some people we'd met from Zimbabwe and they invited me over to judge at Harare Royal Show. And that was something different. Well, again, that won't happen now because since Mugabe took over, all the Charolais have gone. Have they? Okay, but it would be quite quite a Charolais stronghold then, would it? Yes, it was. was, They were a dominant uh, society over there. Mm -hmm. And it was different. It was like old England. There were more, you know, there was lawns and there was a secretary in the corner under an umbrella and... At 11 o'clock, she says, would you like a glass of gin? Would you like a gin and tonic? I said, well, no, I said, we're busy judging. She says, well, you can either have one at 11 or 11 at 1. Excellent. It was tremendous. It was uh, something that was, you know, unforgettable, yeah. And you judged a few more shows as well? Did you get out in the judging circuit? Uh, Not really, no. I, I have done, but I have more fun talking to a judge after a, a judging competition and I believe it's a judge's it's a breeder's privilege to judge sure. cattle also from a political point of view it's quite difficult I suppose being CEO to be seen in, in that in the middle of the ring as well well I wouldn't do it when I was CEO no. uh, I, I did Black Island I didn't mean to breed here at Kelso after I'd retired mm-hmm. and I could have judged the Yorkshire I was invited but I said no I think it's a, a, a breeder's privilege and uh and I've, you know, I've turned it down. And I thank people thank very much for the honour, but I, I think, you know, you should have a breeder. But when you say you judge into breeds, that is saying, well, I'm just saying you're a one, a one breed man, but you're not. You're a cattle man through and through. You'll know a good beast. And as you know, some Richard Bartlett said, a good beast is never the wrong colour, and that would be the same you know, when you're in the middle there. You, you don't favour your own breed. You oh, yeah. see them all individually, don't you? No, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I think I put a red breed up. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. The shows are starting to become, 
more expensive these days, aren't they? But they still have their place. You say you like to get out to the shows, and, and so do I, with, with a few sheep and whatever. Still have their place for, for, as a meeting place, but uh, it's getting harder and harder for these shows to make ends meet, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, from a breeder's point of view, it is a shop window. It's like having your own trade stand. Uh, I know it costs money, but also you have the opportunity to maybe sell something if you're at the show. Yeah. And uh, without cattle, I believe these agricultural shows are pretty much non-events. Yeah. I mean, I've had many memories over the years. I mean, we've had such fun. and uh, have some fantastic chairmen. You know, like Drew Adam, he, well, Peter Vasey employed, he was the chairman who was on council and employed me. Drew Adam came on, we got on like a house on fire and we we sort of grew up together through the job. One thing Drew said, we don't do grey areas, it's black and white. <laughs> That's amazing. I think a lot of people would say that you see things in black and white and say things in black and white as well, David, which is probably how you've got on so far. I'll be going back mentioning Drew Adam, of course. Again, our listener will know that Drew Adam's father, Bob Adam, was Mr. Aberdeen Angus Ansam. So, I mean, he was... Uh, he would be the top Angus breeder in the world. And Drew, when he got got, got uh, into the job, he saw the writing on the wall and he threw himself as wholeheartedly into Charolais as, as his father had done into Angus, hadn't he? Yeah, yeah, Drew was great. Mm-hmm. We, we learned a lot together and, uh, you know, it, yeah, he was good. Um, I don't like to do too much name dropping because I have a lot of good chairmen, but Alistair Houston was an exceptional chairman and, and man, personality. Yeah. That was a great loss, you know, at least to passing away. Absolutely was, and man, everybody looked up to, and and, and as you said, an able breeder, been in Simitals and Charolais, and and of course Angus more recently, but uh, yeah, very able breeder, and and a a big loss to big loss to the breed. He didn't do anything anything by chance, he always gave things great thought. He was very, very able. And my final chairman was Andrew Harnell. Okay, honky, um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I was speaking to him a couple of nights ago, yeah, because a great breeder as well, but a, a good chairman, I would say. Oh, uh, yes, he was very good. And because it was my last year, the clubs invited me to go, you know, for a, a farewell do. Mm-hmm. And Andrew insisted he came with me. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had some good times in the last year. Yeah, good. Uh, Good. Yeah. And yeah, Andrew did well this year as well with a bullet at Sterling. Got a good, good bunch of cattle there at uh, yeah. at Fallon Inch. And uh, I'd say there'd be a few rogues in amongst amongst the, the trade. There may be rogues in in the nicest sense of the world, the likes of Alan McKagan people. There would be some people in there that would be, uh, yeah, rogues. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say there were rogues or characters. Some needed a bit of watching, and we we did, you know. We, we, we we like to mix a bit of business with pleasure, but I mean, said so at the end of the day, we used to have our standards. Mm-hmm. And when Alistair was there, we rewrote the the memorandum and articles of association, you know, and we've got some information from France uh, on growth rates because they have various testing stations in France for Chardonnay heifers, and oh, they had over a hundred thousand calvings to report on, and they knew the maximum growth rates up to 30 days of age for cattle. And we use that as a benchmark then for doing inspections. Because we, one thing which we did, we moved from the Meat and Livestock Commission uh, performance recording to the Abri performance. And it, it was a fantastic, we had great support from Abri in those days. There were some really good men there. I don't know what it's like today, but they're really good men. 
And if you didn't have your pedigrees right, and you didn't have your dates of birth right, and your basic information, then the system was open. You know, it, it wasn't giving you the information you were wanting out of it. So we used to have hurt checks, DNA checks, uh, to authenticate the information going in, and it was working well. One thing I've, I've set up with, with Andrew Hornell, this was, in his last year, we were starting to look at myostatin in Charolais. Okay. And developed that, and that to me is one of the best things that we that we've done through the DNA, or they've done through the DNA testing, being be able to identify the myostatin carriers, because you can have cattle which are easy carving, but they could be carrying myostatin. You put an easy carver on an easy carver, and all of a sudden the system's a disaster because they've had some difficult carvings, and it's because two of these myostatins have come together and produce some of these, well, do you remember the cool app calves we used to get? Some, some of the... So that, that was a move forward. Some, some of the, yeah, the, the people are quite happy with the myostatin if they want to carve the things, but at least if they know where it is and then that's it's identified, yeah. then uh, yeah, they've got the choice. Yeah, they? yeah, let them make their own minds up there. Well, you sound like you're enjoying your retirement there, David, so I'm keeping you keeping you away. I don't know what you're doing. Do you play a bit of golf as well? You get out doing that? You know, golf? Yeah, I, I used to play a bit of golf down in, in Claverton in Warwickshire. I haven't played for a couple of years, but I've got going with one or two lads up here now, and uh, uh, I quite like that as well, yeah. And when it's not raining, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's fine. Well, we don't get much rain in this quarter, really, you know, compared to Western Scotland and, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's cool. Lovely part of the world that you're in there, David. Well, thanks very much for giving us the time there. It's quite fascinating to hear the, the life of a CEO, I'd say one of the most successful CEOs in, in, the, in the, the livestock um, business in the UK anyway, and it's great to hear some of your, some of your stories out of that. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Andy. No problem at all, and good luck to you, and I hope you're, you're not frazzling too much in France. <laughs> well, good luck. We're going to need this weekend because we're off to Paris to see uh, um, Scotland playing Ireland in the in the World, oh, Cup, well, World Cup rugby. So that could be a box of hankies for somebody I'm anyway. Money on that one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Scotland will win it, but to be, to be knocked out because I think they need to win by so many points to get through. It's going to be a tough one. So uh, there we go. I hope we do as well. Yeah. Well, David, thanks very much for your time. That's been superb. Very good, Andy, and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about what Harbro do and how they support the industry as well as just us, uh, contact your local representative or look them up on the Internet and uh, find out how Harbro supply a range of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice. So uh, please uh, look them out and, and we thank them for their sponsorship. And while you're there on the internet, uh, don't forget to look out the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find a whole community of, uh, of followers and people interested in this, uh, in this livestock sector. So uh, have a look there. There'll be photographs and various other information. Please uh, put your own input in there to, uh, to support our Top Lines and Tales page and community. And, and don't forget to please click the subscribe button on wherever you listen to your podcast there. Just uh, help keep the high profile of Top Lines and Tales. And uh, I thank everybody now as we reach our 150th episode there. Once again, I thank you all for your continued support in listening to Top Lines and Tales.